0: Take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. That's where we are today. We're going to move through the entire letter called 1 Peter in your Bible. We'll start in chapter 1, so go ahead and find that. And we're going to summarize this book to get a sense of what it teaches. It's best if you follow along, so if you didn't bring your Bible, go ahead and uh, use one of the Purack Bibles there and follow along because we'll be moving through the passages together. 1 Peter, chapter 1. And here's the key concept today. This world is not our home. But there's a sub-clause, if you will, to our key idea this morning, and that is, this world is not our home, so don't be surprised if you are treated like a stranger from time to time. That's the essence of the message of 1 Peter. Don't be surprised if you're treated like a stranger in this world that is not our home. First Peter chapter one is where we will start, and I read over the Thanksgiving holidays a story about a fam- particular family's Thanksgiving. And in this uh, Thanksgiving dinner, the author, uh, the extended family of the author, gathered at Aunt Doris's house. And Aunt Doris made an announcement as they sat down to Thanksgiving dinner. After they said uh, the, the the blessing over the food, she said. There is a secret ingredient in the stuffing and I'm going to give five dollars to anybody who can find out what the secret ingredient is." And so the family began to sniff and to touch and to taste that stuffing to find out what the secret ingredient is and people couldn't quite put their finger on it. But after a while, somebody found out and they called out the secret ingredient. The secret ingredient was ground up potato chips in the stuffing. Now, no one expected that, ground-up potato chips. And Peter is writing something uh, about something that no one expects, really, as a part of the Christian life. After all, we are the children of the King. We are connected to the Creator of the universe. We are a part of what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is doing in the world. And what we wouldn't expect is that there would be suffering along the way. But that's the secret ingredient. Peter says there is suffering because this world is not how it's meant to be. We lived in a broken world that does not follow yet the values of the king. And so Peter writes the Christians of his age to prepare them for suffering, this secret ingredient. 1 Peter is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And really it's one of my favorite books because of what it might have been but is not. You see, he's writing this book when times are bleak. He's just about to experience one of the worst eras of Christian persecution up until that point in history. In fact, Peter himself will lose his life in the next few years due to the persecution. Scholars who analyze when these books were written in history tell us that it is most likely that 1 Peter is written just before the persecution of Nero, breaks out, which is a a horrendous time for Christian believers. But already, Christians were ostracized, Christians were looked down on as a persecuted minority. You have to understand that in the Roman Empire, the, the Roman mindset was one of polytheism. They had a pantheon of gods that they would worship, and as they conquered kingdoms, they incorporated their gods into their system of paganism. And so along comes Christians and Jews, by the way, and they say, well, there is only one God. And to the Roman mind, it sounded like this guy might as well be an atheist. He only believes in one God. That's like this far away from atheism. Added to that, they didn't understand the, the worship of Christians. And they heard these rumors about the ceremony that we now call Communion. And they heard about eating flesh and drinking blood. And the rumor was rampant throughout the, the Roman Empire that not only are these Christians the next to being atheists, they are also cannibals. And so it was considered to be okay to look down on this particular group and to persecute this particular group. And that persecution is going to get intense and it's going to fan out throughout the entire empire of Rome. And so Peter writes this letter, and it could have been that he would write a manual of survival tactics. It might have been that the letter of 1 Peter was, hunker down, hide out, let me tell you how you can escape the suffering that's coming. You guys need to be quiet. You guys need to kind of just ride out this wave of persecution. And then after it is over, then we can talk a little bit more about what we have in Jesus. But that is not what Peter writes. Peter writes, stand up, stand out, be bold for Jesus, because what you have in him is worth all and every bit of suffering that you'll undergo. It strikes me that Jesus changed Peter's name. You know what Peter's name originally? His mom and dad gave him the name Simon. Simon means reed, and a reed is easily broken. But Jesus looked at Peter and said, I'm going to call you Peter. Peter which means rock. And you get the hard edge of Peter as he writes 1 Peter. So let's read it together. Start the reading in verse 1, chapter 1. He writes this letter to the Christians in Middle and Eastern Turkey. And this is what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So let me ask you a question as we begin 1 Peter. How did you get saved if you know Christ as Saviour? Now, if your mind is drifting to a day where you, rose your, uh, you raised your hand, or a day when you walked the aisle, or even a moment when you prayed a prayer, that's not really the question that I'm asking. I'm asking, theologically, how is it that people get saved? Peter starts with what you have in your salvation because he understands that when you understand what you have in your salvation, you will be able to grow in it and stand firm. How is it that you got saved? Peter shows us that every member of the Trinity of the Godhead of God is involved in your salvation. You have been, he says, chosen by the Father who exists in the eternal state and always sees all of time, always as now. The eternal now that theologians write about. That God who blows your mind. Has chosen you you have always been chosen by God you have always been loved by God you have always been known by God God sees all time all the time and he knows you and he's chosen you and, and based on that choice that that decision that God has made in the eternity outside the passing of time He sent God the Son to pay the price on the cross so that we can be saved, so that justice is served in love. And then the Holy Spirit sanctifies you. The Holy Spirit enters your experience, enters your life and regenerates you, makes you new from the inside out. That's how you got saved. You are saved because you surrendered to the overwhelming, forgiving work of Jesus. And you made yourself vulnerable to the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit through faith. And God the Father oversaw that entire process. It is God's work that has gotten you saved, not your work. So based on that... You have security in what you are in Jesus Christ. That gives you hope. Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter wants them and us to nail down who we are. We are those in whom God has worked. And then he says, based on that salvation, I want you to grow in holiness. The second section of the book deals with the Christian's sanctification. And sanctification is growing in holiness. And it begins in chapter 1, verse 14. This is what he writes. He says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. As you grow up in Christ the process is growing more and more holy. But what is it that that comes to your mind when you hear the word holy? What's the image of holiness? All around us, we live in a world that in the the image of holiness, when they use that word, it is a skewed and perverted image. It is not the image that God has in mind. It's the image of something that's boring, something that's, you know, no fun, something that, that just nobody would really be attracted to. I don't know if you, if you ever read any of the works by John Steinbeck. He's a great author, a fantastic writer. In one of his books, East of Eden, he has a character that he describes as a Christian, or at least as a church-going woman. But when he introduces this character, this is how he describes her. I'm going to quote. She sa- he says, she was a tight, hard little woman as humorless as a chicken. She had a dour Presbyterian mind and a code of morals that pinned down and beat the brains out of nearly everything that was pleasant to do. Wow. That is Steinbeck's image of what holiness is, of what growing in Christ is or following him. People equate holiness with kind of a sour pickle personality, but that is not holiness. You may have a gallbladder problem, but that's not holiness, all right? Holiness is living according to God's design for your life, and God's design for your life is beautiful, is joyful, but it's different than the world, okay? It's different, And part of what we're doing, as we say we're growing in holiness, is we're doing battle. And the battle rages on the level of your desires. We must understand that we pray, God, give me the the desires that you have for me. Help me to want what you want for me. Because the case is simply this. Just because it comes naturally to you, just because it comes easy to you, does not make it right for you. There is something called holiness. So God, make my desires what you desire for me. And when you pray that prayer, you pray it with this confidence. God does not want you to have a boring life. He wants you to have a better life. So grow up in holiness, he says. It means being more and more conformed to Him. When you see the word holiness in the Bible, I want you to, or holy, I want you to think of, of two other words. These are the two words that always go with that word. It is, they are the words separate and pure. When you're holy, you're separated out. You don't blend in. And that's what Peter's saying to those who are going to face persecution. Don't blend in. Don't hide out. Don't just go along. You make sure that you are obviously different and separated out. But your difference should be, the second word, pure. Your difference should be your moral quality. Your difference should be your righteousness. That's what makes you stand out. And that's still our call today. You are to be a holy people called out by God, separate and pure. What it means is this, in the workplace, in the school halls, on the playgrounds, no matter where you are, in the neighborhoods, in the office, at the plant, when people are standing around in little huddles, telling dirty stories and using bad language, if they look at you and they say, oh, sorry, I don't mean to offend you, rejoice and be glad. Because they see a difference in you. And if they don't see a difference in you, work on it. <laughs> grow in holiness, says Peter. Understand your salvation. Grow in holiness and also grow in love. That's part of sanctification. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. Now you have been, pure, now you have been purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brethren. Brothers love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply. And he describes the, what love looks like in the beginning of chapter 2. We'll follow along with, in verse 1. I'm just going to just describe it real quickly. He says, these are things you have to give up if you're going to live a life of love. You have to give up malice, which is a desire to hurt others. You have to give up deceit, which is a desire to gain advantage by deception. You have to give up hypocrisy, playing a role and faking it. You have to give up envy, a desire for the privilege that somebody else has. You have to give up slander, putting others in a bad light in conversation, shading the truth to do so. You give up and renounce those things because you're craving something else. And here's what you crave, verse 2. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, see, babies feel a hunger for milk. There's a the sense where they need to be satisfied and they know that the milk is good. And Peter is subtly saying, you know, we need to be hungry for the right things and be hungry for the things of the Lord. And when you're hungry for the things of the Lord, you will grow. And look at the image he uses for the growth. Verse 5 of chapter 2, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. Now, whenever you read the word, I want you to keep in mind to ask the question: Why does he say it that way? Just keep that question in your mind, because Peter describes a living house that we're being built up to. In, you know, we, each of us are the stones that make up this house. The, the stones that make up this house, and it would have been perfectly understandable if he would have said, "You are the stones that make up the house of God." Okay, that would mean that we're together in this, that we depend on each other, stone resting upon stone. It would mean that we're built into something beyond each one of us, that we work together. I would get that. I would understand that imagery. But Peter says, you are being built up as living stones. Why does he add that? Stones aren't living But he wants us to to be impressed with his flow of thought here. And the whole flow of thought is maturity. He says, living things you see grow up. Living things mature. Living things in their maturity change over time. So it's not just that you're a stone in the house that God is constructing. It's you are a living stone. You are meant to change and to grow and to mature. And the challenge is this. Is your Christian walk identical to what it was two years ago or ten years ago? Are your opinions about the things of faith identical to what they were two years ago or ten years ago? Do you do the kind of service in the kingdom of God exactly the same as you did two years ago or ten years ago? Is your knowledge of the Word different than it was two years ago, or ten years ago? Are you struggling with the same sins that you were two years ago or ten years ago? Peter says, don't be a stagnant stone. Be a living stone. You should be growing up. You should be maturing. And as you mature as the house of God together, remember, Jesus is the precious cornerstone, and you will find ability to face the, the pressure that comes. He talks about a Christian salvation. He talks about a Christian's sanctification. And then from chapter 2 through chapter 3, he talks about a Christian's submission, submission to the authorities around us. He says you got to submit to the government, recognizing that the government has the job of... of uh, of uh, uh, stressing what is right and putting down what is wrong. You've got to submit to human authority, and there he uses the image of slavery. And we apply that to our places of business and our jobs or our schools. And the principles in, in principle in terms of the application there is simple. Do your best in all aspects of your job, no matter what your job is. And remember that your real boss is Jesus. Submit to the government, but understand that you fear God and honor the king. Submit to the human authority and do your best because you represent Jesus in the workplace. And then he says, in family life, you, live, you need to live out the attitude of humility and love towards one another. Husbands and wives love one another. And Peter notices that there's a particular situation that's going on in his day that is still with us today, but it was prevalent in Peter's day. And that is that women were coming to Christ before their husbands. All right? And Peter sees that phenomenon, and the question that comes with it is from the woman, how can I influence my husband to come to Christ? How can I be an influence in his life? Listen to what he says, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. See, here's what Peter is saying. Here's what not to do. Don't go home and lunchtime every Sunday re-preach the sermon to your husband over the lunch table. Don't go home on Sunday and begin the conversation with, you should have been in church today. The pastor must have followed you around all week. He was kind of watching everything that you did. As a matter of fact, here are my notes. You can just read them. That's not the way to win them. The principle is that no one ever gets nagged into the kingdom of heaven. But the example that you show, the submission that you show, the reverence that you show will influence others. And that's true, not only wives to husbands, but husbands to wives as well. See, he's building the case for you have to live a saved life. You have to live a sanctified life. You have to live a submitted life. And then, in chapter 4, he gets around to the idea, you'll be able to face the sufferings that come. Suffering is coming. And you need to live for God in the midst of the suffering. All of this will enable them to be faithful through the persecution. But if you think that the Christian faith is all about what Jesus can do for me, it's all about what Jesus can get for me, what Jesus can give to me. If Christianity is nothing more than another pathway for me getting wealthy and healthy and enjoying pleasure, if that's all that this is, the minute those things get threatened, you're going to abandon the faith and walk away. But when you see past that to eternity and what you have in Christ, and you recognize that there are some things worth suffering for then you will stay strong. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because He who has suffered in His body is done with sin. In other words, once you understand what is worth living for and what is worth dying for and what is worth suffering for, it gives you clarity in how you are to live your life. He's warning them that persecution is coming and you need to get that clarity before it arrives. And then he says, when it does arrive, remember, you're going to need each other. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace. You're going to need each other. You're going to need to bail each other out of jail. You're going to need to shop in each other's stores because other people are going to boycott you. You're going to need to deliver meals. You're going to need to bind the sick and heal the wounded. You're going to need to do all of that, all kinds of various ministries of grace. You need each other because suffering is coming. And the church that will weather the storm as we enter chapter 5, the body that's going to weather the storm of suffering, he says, has two qualities. It has good and godly leadership and it has a culture of humility chapter 5 verse 2 to the leaders he says be shepherds of God's flock that is over your care under your care serving as overseers not because you must but because you are willing as God wants you to be not greedy for money but eager to serve Good and godly leadership is essential to guide the church through the storms of suffering. And then he says, but also humility, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Blessing is coming in due time. Have eternity in view as you weather the storm of life, but recognize that you have an advocate who hears your prayers. Now, that's the arc of the book of 1 Peter, as he encourages them to get ready for the suffering that's coming. But I skipped a verse that I saved for the very end, because it is my favorite verse in 1 Peter. And it is 1 Peter 3.15, and this is what it says. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I hope that you are shocked when you understand that he says that as he anticipates they're going to suffer. He says the overwhelming quality with which you should face this suffering, the thing that you should be known for, is hope. And then when people notice the hope, explain that it's based on Jesus. Give them a reason for the hope that you have stand tall stand up stand out how not by me being more whiny than anybody else but by me by being more hopeful and give a reason for your hope and that hope is Jesus there's where you get hope